0: The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter one, verses three through nine. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Adele. Let me add my welcome to Lisa's and uh, to all of you joining us remotely and here in person, welcome to National Presbyterian Church. I certainly would not be here if it were not for the body of Christ that has called me, challenged me, corrected me, encouraged me. And we need one another. It's when we are together in these moments, I think, that we begin to see more of the beauty of the gospel. So let me encourage you. Your presence here this morning is an encouragement to me and to those around you, even if you don't know one another very well. Welcome i appreciate the way adele read that text i have come to believe that this paragraph this gift of god to us this morning is one of the most beautiful and majestic sections in all of scripture you might remember that last week i suggested that this if you made a new year's resolution to spend more time in the scripture i wanted to raise the stakes a little bit and suggest that you dust off the memory muscles and begin to try to commit more of Scripture to memory. This is a great place to start, even if you were just to take the next six weeks and work on these first nine verses from this epistle uh, called First Peter. My guess is that you will be surprised by how often those words come back to you in particularly critical moments. How to make Scripture more readily available to us, those of us who seek to live by the Word of God help us get the word inside us by memory. So let me encourage you to take a stab at it. There will be no grades in this class. You can do it on your own. You needn't tell anybody, but then you might find a phrase that comes to mind at just the right moment when you're praying for somebody or with someone, I encourage you to give it a try. And especially this text. It is certainly one of the most powerful in all of scripture. You may have your favorites, but this is one of mine. Why? For several reasons. First of all, I think we have here a clear and simple exposition of the heart of the gospel. If you were to commit this section to to memory, for example, you would have a clearer sense in your own heart and mind of what the gospel is. That God in his mercy did not turn his back on creation, but sought us out in a reclamation project that has cosmic proportions. Second, it focuses on the heart of that project of reclamation, which is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, who gave up his life for you and for me, reconciling us to God by the cross, and by rising from the dead, giving us assurance of certain and eternal victory. Every power is subject to his lordship. Things on earth, things in heaven, political powers, economic, social powers, every power that would oppose the purposes of God has been vanquished in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ from the dead. And third, this paragraph, perhaps most importantly, looks squarely at the challenges and hardships that accompany life in a world that is not the way it is supposed to be. Peter looks right at this broken world at its most difficult, at its most unjust, and declared that there is hope. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope we're done a disservice by the way our, our culture marshals the word hope, the way it gets used. We might say, for example, I hope Georgetown wins the, the NCAA t- tournament title this year. Some of you are laughing. You understand that that's a futile hope. I hope the stock market doesn't go down further. I hope an asteroid doesn't crash through the roof while I'm at church hope and hope in the way that americans usually use it has no content it's usually just an expression of longing or wishful thinking those of you of a certain age might remember uh, a, a movie starring debbie reynolds about the sinking of the titanic i can't what's the name of that movie i can't even I can't. okay thank you very much And there's Debbie Reynolds floating on the North Atlantic as the Titanic goes down. And she bursts into song. You gotta have hope. Just a little bit of hope. I mean, that's the way Americans... Did you like that, choir? (laughs) That's the way Americans talk about hope. It's absolutely empty. We have to muster up. A little positive mental attitude here. Absolutely, the next iceberg might take us down, but not if we sing through the dark of the night. We'll be rescued. Nonsense. But that's the way Americans use the word hope. In the New Testament, the word is used very differently. It's absolutely chock-a-block with content. It's an expression of absolute certainty with regard to the future. New Testament hope is the constant surety that a glorious future has already been written for those who dare to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And in this little paragraph that we've read this morning, Peter says that that hope is underwritten by at least three things. First, he says that that hope is rooted in the character of God himself, specifically in his character of mercy. He will not treat you as you deserve to be treated, but he will be gracious to you. Hope starts here, not in our circumstances, not in our ability to be wise and control our investments. Hope starts in the character of God. Hope is built into God's very nature. But then, secondly, it is won for us by God's action in Christ, says Peter. Every year year when we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the final victory of a hope that is not in vain. In fact, it's not just Easter, but every Sunday morning can be called the celebration of the resurrection. Because each day in the Sabbath rhythm of the way that Christians mark time, When we gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, it's called that because it was the day in which Jesus broke the bonds of death and rose to new life. And as He rose, so shall we. The kingdom of God is breaking in, and that's what we are celebrating here this morning, whether you know it or not. Resurrection. Resurrection is at the very heart of the Gospel. It confirms the vanquishing of evil and the victory of God. It's because of Christ's death and resurrection that the poet John Donne can explain, Death, thou shalt die. The grave could not hold him, nor shall its grasp prove strong enough to hold those who look to Jesus Christ for their future. Hope is rooted in the character of God. It's proven by the resurrection of Christ. And thirdly, it is guaranteed by the present work of the Holy Spirit. You see how much is packed into these few verses here? Guaranteed by the work of the Holy Spirit, what Paul calls the down payment of the life to come. Peter puts it slightly differently, but he means the same thing in verse five. We through faith are shielded by God's power, by God's Holy Spirit until the coming of salvation. Now, does Peter mean to imply that Christians then are shielded from hardship and persecution? He's hardly that naive. He knows of the struggles of the church, that's why he's writing this letter. He's heard of Paul's trials and sufferings. He was in all likelihood present at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and of course he knows his own story. He knows himself, the story of false bravado and betrayal of his Lord at the crucial moment. So this is no Pollyanna promise that Peter is making. What he's conveying here is something far more profound, something like this. Given the trustworthy character of our hope, rooted as it is in the love of the triune God who made us and redeemed us and has guaranteed our future, the trials which come our way are transformed. What evil intended as a destructive force in your life and in mine, God reshapes so that those challenges in his loving hands become the means whereby our God tests our faith and builds character into our lives, the character that exemplifies his character. As Samuel Rutherford, the old Puritan preacher said, faith tested is better than faith. There is no struggle, there is no trial, there is no tragedy that cannot be redeemed by the love and power of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that we act like Debbie Reynolds, singing hollow songs into the night. It doesn't mean that we simply put on a smiling face and act as though we were above somehow the tragedies of the world around us. Quite the opposite, in fact. Because we have such a certain hope We can face with assurance the suffering that comes to us and to those around us, knowing that in spite of how it feels, it won't destroy us. Do you remember those bracing words from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 when he says, what can separate us from the love of God? And then he lists everything imaginable that you and I could come up with. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, knowing that we are guaranteed our future ought to have a freeing effect on us so that we of all human beings are freed from the fear of the future so that we might be set free in the present to give ourselves freely in love and service to those in need around us. But this freedom, as you can imagine, is hard won. The tempering of souls is only accomplished through the fires of hardship. Peter knew this. Remember again his own story. His was a tale of bitter grief, a shame born of cowardice in the face of his own persecution. His brash confidence was put to the test after Jesus was arrested, and Peter ran. but be careful here. The Christian story is not a compilation of human success stories. Like some Greek myth, the story of a hero facing down possible odds and conquering all for the sake of his own glory. Our lives are from first to last, underwritten by God's mercy, a mercy that calls us again and again to trust him And to follow him, even as Jesus did for Peter himself. If you remember that scene on the beach in John chapter 21, where Jesus, knowing full well the betrayal of Peter, looked him in the face and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. See, he commissions Peter after he recognizes his failure, not because of his perfection. This mercy is found over and over in the maze of our suffering, often surprising us when we find it. One friend of mine facing an unexpected and protracted illness expressed surprise at his renewed confidence in the presence and power of God, even in the face Of such a very challenging diagnosis. Mercy in the maze of our suffering. Or take a very different example. In January of 1956, Martin Luther King had just arrived home, having just been released from the Montgomery jail. His wife and two-month old daughter were already asleep, and he was eager to sleep himself, but the phone rang As it did some 30 or 40 times a day, the voices on the other end of the line always full of malice and threat. And this call was no exception. And King tells us, after that call, I felt myself faltering. I was ready to give up. I felt myself growing in fear, head in his hands, he looked to his Lord in prayer. Lord, I'm losing my courage. I'm afraid. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And in that moment of desperation, the Lord spoke to him, stand up, Martin Luther. Echoing the very words of his namesake, Martin Luther, who when he himself was put to the test, rose to his feet and said, here I stand. The Spirit of God is saying the same thing to Martin Luther. Stand up, Martin Luther. I will be with you even until the end of time. And King reports in that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. Almost at once, my fears began to fade. Mercy in the maze of our suffering. God's mercy in the maze of King's despair and exhaustion. God's mercy, His presence here and now because of the resurrection. In Jesus Christ, God has gone through this ahead of us, and He will bring us through with Him. As in God's and in God's merciful hands, even our hardship will be used to good purpose. Nothing is wasted in the economy of God, and in that, we rejoice. That's what Peter is saying to those beleaguered disciples of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter. And it's what he's saying to you this morning. You know, we live in strange times. On the one hand, we have remarkable freedom in our faith. I doubt that any of you got in the car this morning to come to church here at MPC, wondering if you were going to make it because you might be arrested once it was discovered that you were going to church. We gather without fear. We can name the name of Jesus. We might be embarrassed, but we're not going to get arrested. Unlike many places in the world where that's simply not the case. But there is, at the same time, a force that is at work in our culture, a, f- a force that at best is seeking to neutralize the influence of religious ideas and institutions, call them into question. More and more, our modern sensibilities are shaped by a a combination of, on the one hand, empirical knowledge that shows up in slogans like, trust the science. And then also a deep suspicion of any attempt to describe the trajectories, the larger meanings of life. Oz Guinness puts it this way, in traditional societies, most human beings were open to a world beyond the natural, beyond the visible, beyond the tangible. Pursuits as down-to-earth, as farming or business, sex and politics were seen in the light of a world beyond this present world. Today, for some people all the time, and for most people some of the time, this combination ensures that ordinary reality is not just the official version of the modern world, but the only allowable reality. Traditionally, human life was lived in a house with windows that opened onto the possibility of other worlds. In modern life, however, We live in a world without windows. In short, the modern life quite literally manages without God. And Christians are shaped and influenced by this force. I myself feel its power to manage my life without reference in any meaningful way to God. Perhaps you join me in recognizing yourself In this accusation. It's working to our detriment. Peter is asking that we throw open the boarded-up windows of our lives, that we frame our lives not around the news that we read in the morning papers, not by the results of the next election or the Supreme Court decision, not the next iPhone release, but that instead we frame our lives fundamentally around the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We are to live, as Stanley Hauerwas says, so that your life only makes sense if Jesus Christ has been risen, has been raised from the dead. We are to live so that your life only makes sense if Jesus has been raised From the dead why did Jesus say so pointedly to Nicodemus you have to be born again Nick it's because all of us left to ourselves will see the world and our place in it in the wrong way we need to have our eyes opened our hearts laid bare Otherwise, we'll see it through the framework and conventions of our own time and place, without even being aware that our vision is being shaped by lenses that distort reality itself. Jesus himself knew this. Why else did he arise every morning to commune with his Father? Why else did he every day and many times in between during the day, have to anchor his short life in the truth Of God through prayer. It was his way of making sure that the windows of his life stayed open. Christian spirituality is not otherworldly. You might have heard it said that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That's a a false form of Christian spirituality. It's not otherworldly. Christ calls us to love this world as he does. But Christian spirituality is a matter of another greater reality that is breaking into this world beyond the obvious one. And we are invited, commanded would be a better word, we are commanded to frame the way we see the world and live in the world through that reality. Live your life so that it only makes sense if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Victoria Brezhnev did that. She saw the world through the reality of Jesus Christ and she lived in quite a challenging world. You might recognize her last name because she was the quiet wife of the leader of the Communist Party, Leonid Brezhnev, who wielded great power from 1964 until his death in 1982. But at his funeral, as she stood quietly by her husband's casket, she stood motionless until just seconds before the casket was closed. And then just as the soldiers were reaching for the lid to bring it down, Victoria reached down and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There in the citadel of atheism, The wife of the man who had run it for decades was declaring, no. That's a false view of reality. That's not the way it is. My husband was wrong. And she did this, all of this, simply by making the sign of the cross over her husband's body, the sign of hope. Reminding everyone that there was another better way to understand the world than through the propaganda that they had been fed. It was her way of framing the world through the reality of Jesus Christ. When I leave worship this morning, I'll head back to North Carolina to officiate at the graveside service of a dear friend who suffered for more than 15 years with a rare debilitating disease. She leaves behind a faithful husband and a son who has never known a time when his mother wasn't vulnerable to the possibility that if he brought a cold into the house it could kill her. The grief over her death is immense in my part of the world and yet I have never known a family that has so faithfully faced such a threat with such assurance and hope in Jesus Christ. When I would have been consumed with anxiety surrounding every doctor's report, she was sending emails to our family, assuring us that she was praying for our children or our church. We received countless gifts of kindness that she sent our way when she couldn't sleep at night because of the pain. Her husband, emotionally exhausted, absolutely. Sorrowful over the loss of his wife and his son's mother, absolutely. But through all those years, they framed their lives And the brokenness of the world as they were experiencing it through the hope that they found in Jesus Christ it will be a privilege one of the finest privileges of my life to stand at her graveside and give thanks to God for her life the churches to which Peter was writing understood this too even though they were suffering They too were trying to frame their lives through the presence and the promise of Jesus Christ. Peter says to them admiringly, though you do not see him, yet you love him and you believe in him and you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. I would love to think that Peter, were he writing to MPC, would say the same thing. Let's pray together. This is a good moment to ask yourself, what am I clinging to as a hedge against trusting Jesus Christ? I know we've already had prayers of confession, but I promise you in my life, I could confess every moment of my life. This is a good moment to lay it down. Lord, in your kindness, reveal to us what competes for our allegiance to you. And give us the courage to follow in the way of Jesus. When Evra, even at the moment when his life was required of him, he trusted you. Help us, Lord, not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of this world, to walk in the reality of hope that is rightfully ours as your children. Filled with the Holy Spirit, help us to be signposts of hope in a withering world. Of anxiety and desperation. May we as a congregation serve as just such a signpost as you meet us and walk with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.